Support for Valley Edition comes from the James Irvine Foundation, accepting nominations now for the 2023 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Awards at irvineawards.org. The California Endowment. Health happens when Californians value schools more than prisons. Learn more at calendow.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org health dash equity. From KVPR, you're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. On today's show, LA Times reporters reveal how fraud and corruption kept millions of dollars in settlement money from going to the descendants of people murdered in the Armenian Genocide. And later, how inmates at the women's prison in Chowchilla are finding a sense of purpose in the soil. But first, the other California. That's KVPR's new podcast that takes you to the small rural towns of the San Joaquin Valley. This week's episode focuses on Chowchilla and its western stampede. In this excerpt, you'll hear mention of the Chowchilla Brancos and a man with the nickname of Pooh Bear. Pooh Bear's father, Dan Branco, started the western stampede in 1958 and the Brancos are a longtime Chowchilla family. To find out more about them, you'll need to listen to the whole podcast. But for now, host and producer Alice Daniel shares the excerpt. The Chowchilla Western Stampede takes place over two weekends, with the cattle drive and team roping the first, and barrel racing the second. I'll explain barrel racing in a minute, and no, it doesn't involve pushing barrels or rolling inside barrels. But first, I want to introduce you to Sammy Thurman Brackenberry. She's... 87. No, I think I'm only 86. You argue every time. She's 86 or 87. That's her daughter, Jody Branco. And yes, she's a Chowchilla Branco. Jody is married to Pooh Bear's brother, Larry, who also ropes cattle. Sammy is here at the fairgrounds because, well, frankly, she's a badass rodeo star. She's being honored for her participation in the barrel race, starting with the first one here at the Stampede back in the 1960s. Well, I was overjoyed when I started having a barrel race here. Barrel racing is traditionally a woman's sport, although a lot more men do it now, and involves racing a horse around barrels in a cloverleaf pattern. Sammy's dad ran a ranch in nearby Raymond when she was in her 20s, so she came to Chowchilla a lot. And she did well here and everywhere. I won the world in 1965. I qualified 12 times for the national finals. But Sammy didn't just do barrel racing. She was also a team roper in a sport that at the time was all men. And see, I roped with my dad. We competed in the Rodeo Cowboys Association rodeos, and at the time women couldn't join as a contestant. She was friends with someone high up in the Cowboys Association, and he told her to just enter. And if anyone gave her a hard time, he would deal with them. We won second at Salinas, uh, and I, I placed right here. She says she wasn't a cowgirl, but what people then called a cowboy girl, which was considered more prestigious. Because I roped with my dad and did everything the boys do. For the first time, you'll actually see what the cowboy and his horse are like as you live their real-life adventures on the open range. 
And starting in her early 20s, Sammy also acted in movies and westerns, including the Disney movie Horse of the West, where she played the... The lovely, versatile, talented Elena Vasquez, a name that is legend in California ranching history. Sammy is part Choctaw, part Latina. So this isn't a case of a white woman playing a Latina, which happened a lot back then. And Sammy didn't just act. Her first marriage was to a stuntman. I started doing stunts, and I did stunts for years and rodeoed too. In the 1980 movie, Nine to Five, Sammy was Dolly Parton's double. I think I'd like to just come riding up one day and give him a taste of his own medicine. Nine to Five is a satire about three secretaries who get revenge on their egotistical, sexist boss, Frank. In this scene, Dolly tells her co-workers about a fantasy where she rides a horse to the office and treats Frank like he treats her in real life, a sex object. Frank, I'm warning you, come back here. No, I won't. And he's out of the shoes, ladies and gentlemen. He's out of the shoes. Look at him. That's a big bull hitter from a high-class tower. Now, Miss Dora Lee Rose. At the end of the scene, Dolly, well, Sammy, lassos Frank and ties him up like a cat. Now let's see how long it takes it to hog-tie this sexist, egotistical, lying, hypocritical bigot. Five seconds, ladies and gentlemen, just five seconds. But Sammy says she had the most fun doing stunts in the movie... Comes a Horseman. I was doubling Jane. She doubled for Jane Fonda. Jane Fonda as Ella. You're free to pack it in anytime you want. Woman enough to go it alone in a man's world. So how do they do that? Do they put like a big ponytail? Guess what? She wore falsies. Okay, if she says so. But she did. She wore falsies to match me. And you know, usually the the stunt person matches the actor. You yes, know? Your, best, your best stunt person is somebody that's plain Jane and has no boobs because they can put all that stuff on. <laughs> Doesn't matter what your hair is, if it's long or short, they can fix that too. <laughs> her daughter Jody rolls her eyes, but Sammy says not to worry. Jane wouldn't care. She's super, but I wasn't a real good double for her, but I had to rope. There wasn't nobody else out there that could rope, like I could, or even in, for that matter at all. I'm not sure how to fact check this. I tried to ask via Twitter, but that wasn't successful. I have to wonder what it was like for Jody having a mother who was a rodeo star. Being the rodeo star was probably easier than when we would walk into a restaurant, they thought she was Elizabeth Taylor. They just knew she was a movie star or something. Embarrassed me absolutely to death. And like Elizabeth Taylor, Sammy's been married many times, seven to be exact. Jody says her mom told her that in her day... You had to marry them if you were going to sleep with them, and it's different now. Now she's married to a man who is her junior. Yep, to a guy that's 21 years younger than me. And she's been married to him longer than all the other ones together. He's mostly retired now, she says. He was a wrangler in the business, and uh, but he's retired now, and we have cattle, and we were open. <laughs> And I'm the boss. Spoken like a true cowboy girl. You're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. In the mid-2000s, a pair of class action settlements awarded more than $37 million to the descendants of some of the victims of the Armenian Genocide. 
But an investigation by the LA Times found that corruption and fraud prevented many of the people entitled to those payments from ever receiving a dime. I spoke with the journalist behind that investigation, Harriet Ryan and Matt Hamilton. So let's just start at the beginning of all of this. Um, and Harriet, I'll, I'll start with you. Take us uh, back to 1986 and, and that attorney in Glendale who you know, started out with this very genuine concern that the Armenian genocide could be lost to history. How did this all get started? That's right. It was sort of a, a dark time in the recognition of the genocide or the road to recognize the genocide. It was during the Reagan administration and Armenian activists, including the governor of California, had really been pushing for the United States to recognize that the genocide had occurred and that estimated million people had died, that hundreds of thousands of people had been deported. And um, to say that this was a fact and, you know, the Reagan administration was worried about angering Turkey and they wouldn't uh, recognize a, like even a commemoration day for the genocide. So it's like this period where genocide survivors were dying and Varkas Yagayan was this kind of small time attorney in Glendale, but, but he was the son of a, uh, a victim of the genocide and he desperately wanted to find a way to preserve it. Um, in history. And he was reading, he, he did a lot of really dense reading about the genocide. And he was reading um, these memoirs of the American ambassador at the time of the genocide in the Ottoman Empire. And he came across this reference to American insurance policies. And the ambassador wrote that the Turkish, the authorities were desperate to get their hands on this like list of all the Armenians in the Ottoman Empire who had American life insurance policies. And the reason the uh, Turkish authorities wanted it was that they planned to try to collect on, you know, these people who, who had been murdered, who had been, uh, you know, forced into the desert. Um, they're going to then uh, compound the injustice by trying to collect their insurance policies. And they weren't successful in doing that. But when this attorney in Glendale read that, he said, aha, there is a list of people, of victims of the genocide who are owed money. Their families are owed money from these insurance policies. And here is a way that we can get some kind of judicial recognition of the murder of our um, you know, ancestors, of people in our community. So then let's jump forward a bit in the story. I understand it took quite some time, but eventually there was enough evidence collected to um, file a lawsuit against two insurance companies. Matt, maybe you could pick up the story there. Yes, in 1999, Marcus um, Yagayan filed the first of these Armenian insurance litigation lawsuits. And this was against New York Life Insurance Company. And that alleged that you know, the company had not paid out on the policies uh, of its customers who had perished in the genocide or customers of other companies that had since been brought under uh, or purchased or merged with New York Life. Um, and and that, was, that kicked off uh, what Varkas and, and soon other attorneys hoped would be you know, successive lawsuits against these life insurance companies. That lawsuit settled in about 2004 for $20 million. And it was, you know, compared to what followed, it was, it was on the up and up. As part of that settlement, uh, $3 million went to charity. A few million dollars went to the attorneys uh, who had mounted this suit. And a big chunk of it went to the ancestors of those who died in genocide. And it was handled by this board 
appointed by the state insurance commissioner at the time, um, a board of prominent Armenians here in the Los Angeles area who took in you know, thousands of applications and reviewed them and decided who, who was a rightful heir to these policies. Um, and, and they were paid out from a few hundred dollars to thousands of dollars um, in compensation for you know, the loved one's uh, life insurance policies. It was a relatively smooth process, but during the time that New York Life case was going on, this other lawsuit was filed against uh, the French insurance company AXA, um, and that's where the problems emerged. All right, Harriet, maybe you can uh, you could take this next part of the conversation. So tell us what happened with the lawsuit against the French insurance company. Sure. So the call was put out to the Armenian diaspora. If you have a relative who is on this list of policyholders and it was published online, look over this list, see if you recognize an ancestor. Um, they had a policy with this French insurance company or one of its uh, you know, conglomerates. Um, so fill out an application, send in your proof that you're related to this person, get the birth certificates in order, ship manifest, family Bibles, get all your proof in order and send it to LA and, and your claims are gonna be evaluated. And what happened and what our investigation shows is that 92% of the claims were rejected. So only less than 8% of people who applied or claims that were sent in were approved. And Matt and I you know, have gone through these files, these applications people sent in from all over the world, from Fresno and Bakersfield, but also from Bulgaria and Russia and Armenia and uh, Egypt. And what we saw was people that had really, really strong evidence that they were due money, that they had an ancestor who had an insurance policy and that person didn't get money. They provided in some cases, the actual paperwork from the insurance record, a hundred years old, um, showing that their ancestor had paid for this policy and they were rejected. And you know there were various reasons given for why uh, different people were, were rejected, but overwhelmingly the number one reason why people were rejected was that they had provided allegedly the wrong city of residence for their ancestors. And they're filling out the form, they wrote their name, their birthday, you know, uh, everything they knew about them. And one of the questions was, what was your ancestor's city of residence? And if they got this wrong, our investigation shows that the claim, the people evaluating the claims didn't read anymore in many cases. They just didn't look at the evidence. Um, and so that had the result of just all these people who were hoping to get money, who thought they were, they deserved money um, to get some kind of justice. Uh, they were just rejected. Okay, so if you have more than 90% of the claims rejected, and, and I know it's a very complicated story, but what happened to all of that money? So there was this chunk of money set aside in the settlement. So it was a $17 million settlement and just over 3 million went to the attorneys um, and 3 million went to charities um, or was supposed to go to a nonprofit that was then distributed to charities. So you have this $11.35 million pool of money that was supposed to go to families of those who died in the genocide. And any money that wasn't given out to the relatives, to the descendants of those who died would go into the charitable fund. So our investigation showed that about uh, 8 million was distributed to relatives um, who died in the genocide. The rest flowed into this uh, pot of charity money 
And, and as part of that money, you know, the lawyers deviated from the settlement agreement. You know, this money was supposed to go into a French foundation, but the lawyers decided that they themselves would distribute the money to charities of their choosing. And the biggest recipient of money was Loyola Law School here in Los Angeles, which is the alma mater of two of the attorneys in the case, Mark Garagos and Brian Kabatek. I just, I just want to add that you, you know, you ask where the money went. I mean, the people that in that eight percent that got money, there are a lot of really questionable people in there. That money, you know, allegedly paid out to descendants of uh, genocide victims included more than a half a million dollars that went to a guy in Syria who didn't apply for the settlement and had never heard of it. It ended up in a bank account in, in uh, downtown LA that, you know, this man was unaware the money was in there. Other money, three, more than $300,000 went to relatives of the guy who was administering the settlement. Um, there was more than $300,000 that went to uh, allegedly an Iraqi man. And when they tried to find this man after, you know, these checks totaling $300,000 have been written out to him in cash. It appeared he didn't exist. They couldn't find anybody by that name. The Iraqi government had no record of it. The Armenian government had no record of it. The address was like in a Muslim neighborhood in Baghdad. It was crazy. There was no actual proof that he existed. So not only were 92% of the claims rejected, but the 8% that were approved were just filled with like fraud. And so the legitimate people that should have received that, the, the approval rate is, is actually even less than 8% because so there were sham claimants that got through and you know relatives of people involved. It, it's just, uh, it's truly unbelievable. As I was reading your report, my jaw was on the floor. Matt, who, was anyone ever held accountable? The short answer is no. In the court, you know, matters were brought to Judge Christina Snyder's attention. Uh, there were multiple requests for her to order a full-scale audit. Um, that never occurred. Uh, there was a very limited audit that occurred that looked at a select number of claims, but even that didn't look at whether those claims should have been approved in the first place. Um, so the matters that we uncovered in our investigation, they never reached the judge. The whole idea of city of residence being uh, something that disqualified applicants if they got it wrong. Uh, secondly, you know, the lead attorneys in a case, two of them remain lawyers here in Los Angeles with very active practices. The third attorney, Varkas Yagayan, uh, the state bar did go after him for, you know, alleging that he was running a phony charity that took settlement money, uh, but he died before he could defend himself against those charges. And there was another attorney who was somewhat involved in this case, who had a, his law firm account was taking some of the money from the settlement. He ultimately uh, was disbarred and is no longer an attorney here in Los Angeles. But the main lawyers involved in this case, um, no, they have not been held accountable. And there are still a lot of questions about what exactly happened in this case and and why it went so off the rails. 
you know, before we wrap up, I, I just want to come back to the individuals who are, you know, family members of, of people who died in this genocide. Mm-hmm. You know, I know you talked to many of the people who filed claims uh, that were never paid out. Harriet, can you just tell us about the emotional responses that you heard? Oh, yeah. And I mean, this is very fresh and very real, even though we're talking about something that occurred over 100 years ago. I'm not Armenian, but I feel like I got a history lesson from Armenians about how central this is to their identity. And this litigation is very complicated, but the point of it was to say to the world, the genocide happened. People were cheated out of their lives and out of their money, and it's not right. And this litigation in our American court was supposed to be this like beacon for the community around the world to say, yeah, you're right, it did happen. And and the lives of your ancestors mattered. And instead it just devolved into this fraud and this corrupted process where people ended up feeling like they were cheated. I mean, you have these letters people wrote to the judge saying, you know, my father saw my grandparents beheaded in his presence. This is his insurance policy. Where is my money? Um, And it just left a bad taste in, in the mouths of many people. And it wasn't, a clean process. It wasn't deserving of the people who died or of the people who uh, tried to collect on their insurance policies. And it remains like a real stain um, in the community. And I would say that since our story ran, Matt and I have heard from a lot of Armenians, some in, in the Central Valley, who are just like irate about this and are asking, what can we do? How can we get justice? Um, and it's something that is very galling to them. Uh, And I think that you don't have to be Armenian to care that when a matter makes its way through our courts here in America, it should be handled ethically and not just be corrupted and full of fraud. Well, I've been talking with LA Times reporters Harriet Ryan and Matt Hamilton. They are the journalists behind the investigation, A Blood Money Betrayal, How Corruption Spoiled Reparations for Armenian Genocide Victims. Matt and Harriet, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having us, Kathleen. Thank you. This is Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. The state agency that allocates funding for things like roads, bridges, bike lanes, and transit just got a new leader. And she's from Fresno. Leanne Eager took over as chair of the California Transportation Commission last month, and she also serves as the president and CEO of the Fresno County Economic Development Corporation. I spoke with her about bringing a local perspective to this statewide position. Certainly being from the Valley, from the Central Valley, brings a different perspective than folks from other parts of the state, but we're, we're all there to look at uh, the transportation issues up and down the state. You know, one of the things that you know uh, the governor really wants all of us to be looking at is, you know, how is it that we can um, address equity issues? How is it that we can address um, air quality issues while still looking at um, getting people from point A to point B in all parts of the state of California? Now, certainly here in Fresno County and in the Central Valley. We don't have a lot of options um, other than our our local freeways. And so, you know, one of the things that um, is certainly my goal is to ensure that the the people of the Central Valley are looking at, you know, how do we make our roads safer? 
how do we um, finish what we started? You know, there were a lot of promises that were made, you know, up and down the Central Valley uh, to finish uh, parts of 99, to finish parts of 41. And somehow that didn't happen. So we're looking at certainly doing that. And that absolutely comes from a, a safety issue. That absolutely comes from a finish what we start issue. You know, one of the things that we look at is even with air quality issues and, and we're looking at the 99 and, you know, putting a, another lane on each side. Uh, some people say, oh gosh, is that is that a good idea? Well, certainly here in the Central Valley, it doesn't put more people on the freeway because the same amount of people are going up and down uh, the 99 that, that do all of the time, whether there's two lanes or four. Uh, but what it does do is get people faster down that part of, of the stretch of 99 so that you don't have, you know, our trucks idling um, outside of Madeira, that, you know, you don't have people stopping you know, as they go through the, the cities up and down the 99, which does really put, you know, our air quality uh, in a worse position than it was before. Uh, so for me, and from an economic development standpoint, you know, we absolutely need to get our products and our people uh, up and down the state of California. And so that's my goal to, to help all of us do that. Well, to that end, you have talked about the establishment of something called an inland port. Can you explain what those are and, and why you're so enthusiastic about that idea? Sure. So the, the state of California started looking at this uh, really quite a while ago. And, you know, we've had small individual um, inland ports, uh, per se, uh, popping up in different parts around California. But when we're looking at getting uh, some of those trucks and, and some of those products uh, up and down the, the state of California faster, um, instead of Let's just use uh, Fresno County, for example. Instead of loading uh, pistachios onto a truck and, and driving it to Long Beach where you know those trucks can sit there for weeks on end or Oakland and putting them on the boats to, to take them all around the world, you can take your products and take them to an inland port. Right there is where it goes on the freight. Right there, those trains um, take that product right to the, the ports um, and put them on the ships right there so that it, it does really um, alleviate a lot of those issues where right now, I mean, we know what those issues are. We have seen what happens in Long Beach and in LA and in Oakland, um, as our supply chain backs up because you know you can't get your product out or in. Um, this really is looking at across the state of California. Let's start putting things you know on uh, freight trains. Let's start looking at how is that better for air quality up and down the state, but certainly, absolutely here in the valley. And so we're looking at maybe putting two or three of those ports in the Central Valley, large ones and small ones. So California is about to receive an influx of federal funds for infrastructure, roughly 30 billion over the next five years. What are your plans for those funds with a particular lens on, on here in the Central Valley, of course? 
Well, we're, we're hoping it's actually uh, over $40 billion. So um, then we'll be writing for some additional funds. You know, one of the things that I have always believed in is public transportation, always believed in um, transit, always believed in multimodal uh, facilities in order to get people, you know, out of their cars and into transit. So, you know, I'm hoping that a lot of that money can be looking at, uh, you know, bike lanes and looking at how do we um, look to the future and not just spending things on our immediate needs, which of course are important. And, and we have to make sure we do that, as I said, for safety issues and for finishing what we started. But let's start looking at using that money for how do we get places like rural California um, to be attached to um, the major uh, metropolitan areas so that you know people have all kinds of options for living and working. And how is it that we can get you know housing, affordable housing next to those multimodal um, centers where people can can live and work and get on transportation that takes them to different areas. Uh, you know, that's still my dream of uh, our innovative California is how do we make sure that the entire state of California has all of those options that that certain parts of California do. You know, we don't have a BART um, here in the Central Valley. We don't have a Metro here in the Central Valley. But let's look at how we can get there someday. And let's start planning for that right now. You know, we're, we're also looking at you know, um, fixing our, our bridges. You know, that's one of the things that the federal government is wanting us to focus on is, you know, some of our bridges are right at that time when, you know, we're, we're looking at them saying, okay, we only have a few more years before they do start to get dangerous. So let's start fixing those now and, and using some of that federal money to do that, to be looking at the future to ensure the safety of all of us. Well, we just have a few minutes before uh, before we need to wrap up. But before I let you go, I have to ask about high speed rail, <laughs> right? From of anybody, course. anyone who's driven up and down ninety nine is is probably asked themselves the question: Is this thing ever going to get built? So, and I know there's a lot of a lot at play right now uh, in Sacramento as it pertains to the budget and different regions battling it out for for their uh, piece of the pie. So, from your perspective, you know, what do you think the future holds for that project? Well, I, I don't think it's a secret that I've always been a, a supporter of uh, the high-speed rail project. Um, I started looking at how this would, all the opportunities that would come along with high-speed rail um, for the state of California, but certainly for the Central Valley and and certainly for, for my hometown community um, of Fresno County. I do believe um, that that is the future of the way that we should get around the state of California. You know, I, I have traveled around the world. I have seen, you know, what high-speed rail does in other countries. You know, when I was in Spain in, in 2010, and, you know, they were looking at expanding their high-speed rail system, and it really looked a lot like California, uh, the way that they were putting their system together, and it transformed communities people who lived in areas of Spain that never had access uh, to Madrid, all of a sudden they did and they could get on a train and in an hour and a half be in a major metropolitan area and businesses that wanted to grow were able to have a, a main office in a large city and then a smaller office you know, in one of those satellite cities that were, that were on the system. That's what California 
is going to be someday once high-speed rail is up and running. It will open up opportunities that we never even thought of before. Once you can get from downtown Fresno to downtown San Francisco, you know, in an hour and a half or, or Los Angeles, the businesses that can't expand right now in the Bay Area because there's no room and it, you can't afford it anymore, they'll have that opportunity to say, hey, let's open up that satellite office. Let's open up that office in, in the Central Valley and be able to go up and down in an hour and be able to come back and forth and do business in one day instead of the three days that it takes right now. So I have faith. I'm watching it being built right now in Fresno. If you drive up and down the 99, you'll see those beautiful structures. This president and this governor are supportive of our system. So if we're going to do it, certainly now's the time. Well, I've been talking with Leanne Eager, the new chair of the California Transportation Commission. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. You're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. As we've said, this week's episode of The Other California focuses on the rural town of Chowchilla, which is also home to the largest women's prison in the country. We reached out to the Central California Women's Facility to find out more about a program that gives inmates the chance to connect to the natural world. It's called the Insight Garden Program, and it's in 10 prisons in the state. I spoke with volunteer Katrina Friesen and former inmate Michelle Scott, who lobbied to bring the program to Chowchilla. For the time that I was incarcerated, we were constantly told, you can't grow anything, it's not authorized, there is no gardening in prisons. And so Insight Gardening Project actually started in San Quentin, and I was very jealous. I said, why are the guys getting it? And we're not. And I I wrote a letter saying, you know, we have all this great acreage here at uh, Chowchilla. And eventually another site was opened up in our prison. And it was amazing because not only um, was the prison actively promoting it and, and supporting it, but the program itself allowed those of us that were participating to have a hand in the vision, in the growing, in the designing, in the creating, and also in the installation of the garden itself. And that's what made it exceptionally innovative. And so that was the program that uh, I got to participate in. And then Katerina, I understand you were the, you're the former director of that program. What kind of transformation did you see among uh, the women who got the opportunity to work in that garden? Mm. Yeah, I'm the former program manager at Central California Women's Facility and Avenal State Prison of the garden programs there. And I really saw people transform when they were able to come outside, especially after intense lockdowns. Um, So during the pandemic and at other times, people have to stay inside very close, very confined quarters. And so just stepping outside, having access to green space, to the natural world, really reconnects people both with themselves and with a sense of the larger ecosystems that they're a part of. People in the women's prison would come out and talk about I can hear birds, I can, you know, even hearing the sound of traffic connecting with the outside world, connecting with volunteers who are coming in and feeling part of a community. And then I I was able to see people in their transition from inside prison to back home. And that was one of my most powerful 
you know, moments of being a program manager and connecting with incarcerated and then formerly incarcerated people is just seeing their journey, walking with them, um, connecting them with formerly incarcerated staff with Insight Garden program in their transition so that they can, can get out and stay out and really continue the healing journey from inside our program to outside um, to end that cycle of uh, incarceration. You know, Michelle, I'd, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts following up on, on that statement. How, how did your time in the garden help you in, in your transition? Oh, it was not only the balm to my soul, it's what kept me connected to my humanity. And, um, and I think what Katerina was touching on, just the, the privilege of being allowed out of your cell, being outside, in the sunshine, feeling the breeze upon your skin, the the sound of the birds, um, like she said, the cars driving by. It's it's a normalcy that you don't experience when you're locked in a room. Sometimes up to 23 hours a day, uh, when COVID restrictions, especially, were in place, are, are just regular lockdowns. It wasn't uncommon to be locked down for a couple of weeks at a time just because something had happened. So. Uh, I had actually been able to garden and, and landscape in front of uh, my housing unit for many years before the inside garden program came in and just getting outside, like doing anything I could to go outside. I'll dump your trash. Oh, you need something taken over to the work change, volunteering to do cleanup. Um, it really is a privilege that most people don't realize that the ability to just walk outside your door and step outside is something that when you're incarcerated, you don't have that privilege, you don't have that ability. We're literally locked in rooms behind a huge heavy metal door. So the the therapeutic qualities affect not only mentally, but emotionally, uh, and being able to grow things as well, like what Katerina didn't know is some of these women that I saw coming and participating in the program, these are women, not only had they never dealt with plants or grown anything before, um, they were going through their own issues. And I got to see over time what being able to go to the garden did for them, what it brought out in them, what started to evolve within them, because they were learning something else besides the life that they had known, either drugs, violence, sadness, trauma. Instead, something new was introduced into their world and how they gravitated to it and latched onto it and found something to kind of pour themselves into and also allow part of themselves to heal and evolve. So when you talk about transformative um, properties, having a garden inside a correctional setting is so incredibly therapeutic on, on many levels. Michelle is kind of on her own, um, a horticultural therapist. I would say when I first met her, she was tending the garden outside her unit in the honor dorm. And, oh my goodness, I walked around there and she had this, um, silk tree and there were hummingbirds and, uh, pepper plants and plants <laughs> in, it in the corners. And um, it was like this permaculture little paradise because all they had were the resources there. They were using clay blocks that they made from, from the soil 
for their borders and mm-hmm. just mulch chopped up from the plants, gray water from their laundry machines. They mm-hmm. had to be so resourceful. But Michelle would pull people over who she knew had experienced drug addictions or who were dealing with anger issues and the trauma of being incarcerated as well as past traumas. And she would just work with them in the garden. And so I really saw Michelle as this leader and um, garden therapist lady (laughs) who was doing her own healing kind of um, work with people inside prison. And so there are these natural kind of leaders, and I would say mentors, who we had the privilege of having in our program. So it wasn't just me or other volunteers But from the inside, there were these natural leaders who were really just coming alongside each other in the work of of healing. Prison is not set up for people to heal or to learn how to love themselves, to value themselves, to heal from the trauma, the violence that brought them into prison and that they might have contributed to. But there are these therapeutic healing programs like Insight Garden Program, we're one of many that can offer people the space to heal when we're given a place inside prisons, when we're funded, you know, through state programs, when we're given the chance to really open up those spaces within a larger environment that's not set up for people's transformation and growth. You know, Michelle, I know you've written about the silk tree, and I was just wanted to hear a little bit more about the significance of that tree to you. Oh, my silk tree. That's my baby. So uh, I was working in the, uh, I was assigned to the vocational landscaping department and we got a donation of plants and the silk tree was actually um, a little sproutling that had grown in the pot of, I think it was a raphiolepis. And I looked in the Bible, which is the Sunset Western Garden book and identified, oh, it's a silk tree. And I didn't quite pay attention to like how big or how tall it gets. So when I planted her, she was no bigger than my pinky finger. That was the circumference of her trunk. And for the first two years, people uh, joked with me. They said, Michelle, why are you growing that stick? And over time, of course, silk trees get <clears throat> very tall, very broad, etc. And the significance of the tree is, For over uh, at least, I think it was 22 years. I was gardening almost 27, but my silk tree grew for about 22 years. And on the day that um, I found out I was commuted by Governor Brown, I got so overwhelmed because everybody was excited and crowding around a group of us that all I could think of was I need to get outside. I need to get a breath of fresh air. I needed some space to understand what had just this incredible moment that had just happened and as soon as I stepped outside, I saw my tree and I knew I had to go to her. And I wrapped my arms around her and I gave her this hug because I realized I'm, I'm going to be leaving you soon. And when I put my arms around the trunk of my tree, I realized my fingertips, my hands couldn't even touch. And it was a, a very poignant moment when I realized this is how much passage of time has gone by since I've planted you. So the tree held a lot of, it was almost like as the tree bloomed and grew and and thrived, it seemed symbolic of my own ability to grow and thrive and survive in an exceptionally difficult environment. I've been talking with Katarina Friesen and Michelle Scott about the Insight Garden Program um, at the Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla. Thank you both so much for being on the show. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. And finally, the Fresno Master Chorale returns to the stage this weekend to perform Mozart's Requiem. 
KVPR's David Ause spoke to director Dr. Anna Hamry. Well, it's great to be with Dr. Anna Hamra, Professor Emerita of Fresno State University and Musical and Artistic Director of the entire Fresno Community Chorus uh, Organization. Great to have you with us today, Anna. Oh, thank you so much, David. It's great to be with you. So you're getting ready for to come back together for first concert in person after a long hiatus. Right. Absolutely. It's been two and a half years since the Master Chorale has been able to give a concert um, because we're the large group and it's just been very challenging, as you well know. Yes, indeed. And, you know, in fact, one of the things we learned early on in the pandemic, right, is is that unfortunately, because of the nature of human physiology, <laughs> that <laughs> singing became ground zero, group singing became ground zero for early spread of COVID and its variants. So, uh, so vocal groups have been particularly uh, presented with a set of challenges to deal with. So how have you been preparing for this concert with your organization? Well, it's been a long two years. Uh, At first, because we didn't know what we were dealing with, we just shut down. And then we started experimenting with things. We did parking lot choirs. We did jack trip choirs. We did uh, Zooming. Uh, We had lots of chats with composers. We did some recorded performances. It was just a real challenge. We did have a window last summer where a small group could get together and we gave, uh, we, we made a recording, did a premiere actually. And then we had another window around Christmas. So we were able to do a holiday concert. Um, but this is our first big window for the big group. Uh, so it's only been the small groups that have been performing this time, but the big group has been meeting and working on other pieces. And we did Christmas caroling and that kind of thing. But this is a first chance to actually perform in two and a half years, and we're really excited. And uh, you mentioned this is the big group. How many? So how many voices in the group for this? We concert? have, um, I think, we have just over a hundred, about one hundred and ten, singing this performance. We're smaller than we were, um, but we feel very good about what we're doing. Very good, and there's an orchestra as well, right? Yes, there is. How yeah, many pieces right. in that orchestra? Uh, let's see, 8, 9, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 20, about 22 players. Okay. With your first piece back after not performing for two plus years, I'm sure a lot of thought and deliberation went into picking what are we going to do? And so you settled on one of the very well-known pieces in the choral repertoire and best well-known pieces in classical literature. Mozart's Requiem. Yes. So talk to me about how you chose that. Well, there was a lot, a lot of deliberation, as you said, and we were rehearsing other things through the time, during the time we were on break. What do you do when you finally get back together? Well, uh, Marion Carey, one of our board members, suggested the Mozart Requiem, and I agreed it was the perfect one to do. First of all, it's a beloved choral piece. Everybody loves it. It calls for a smaller orchestra, so we have um, more spacing available to us on stage, which is a big deal. Uh, Fewer wind players, another big deal. Um, But, you know, it's so appropriate. We have lost 
thousands of souls during this pandemic. And it gives us a chance to kind of mourn their loss at the same time we are singing a most beloved piece of music. A requiem itself is what? Uh, technically, a requiem is a mass for the dead. And in this case, Mozart was still in the liturgical tradition. So he followed the liturgy of a, a traditional requiem. This is one of the last pieces that Mozart wrote. Yes. And uh, a challenge as well, because it was unfinished at his passing. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, 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 so how did it end up be, you know, coming to, you know, some kind of final completion in, in a form so it was ready for a presentation, performance, and publishing? Yeah, you know, that's, it's, that's quite an interesting story. His wife, Costanza, had a lot of debts when Mozart died, and she knew the one thing that probably could bring some money would get this requiem published. So she went to Mozart's students and the first student sat on a while and played with it a bit and finally was too intimidated to go any farther. So she went to another student, um, Susmeyer, and he was like in his twenties, just a young kid. And he was not as inhibited. And so he took all the notes that Mozart left and put it into a format. Now, people have second guessed that ever since Meyer's edition came out and there have been other attempts to complete it. Sometimes they were just different orchestrations closer to the orchestration that Mozart was doing with, uh, I think Zauberflute was what he was working on at the, close to the end of his life. But none of those other versions have really taken off like the Meyer has. So that's the one we're doing. Now, there's kind of lots of uh, myths and mythology and lore surrounding this piece, and a lot of which, you know, people learned or were exposed to from seeing the movie uh, Amadeus. Could you talk about some of that stuff? Sure. You know, Amadeus was a very engaging story. And here's what's true about it. Mozart was very gifted. Um, He loved to play games. He was a prankster could be very lighthearted, did dabble in opera. And then there are other stories that created mythology. So Salieri, for example, was a prominent composer at the time. But the rest of the story is pretty much made up in that there was a fellow that did commission this for his uh, the passing of his wife, uh, von Walsing. But it wasn't Salieri, and Salieri wasn't part of that at all. Mozart was a very religious man. So he took this very seriously. And apparently he was wanting to get back into what he considered his first love, which was liturgical music. So most of that storyline with Salieri is, is, is just a story. It's not true, Um, but it's, it's very entertaining. It it makes for good drama. Good drama. And how about, since this is one of the last pieces that Mozart wrote, sometimes there's an interpretation that Mozart may well have been writing his own requiem. Uh, Is that, do you think, more of a posthumous uh, attribution? I do. I do. Because um, I don't think Mozart was was planning to die at that point. But he was certainly putting his best efforts into everything he did, really. I mean, it just magnificent. So the only movement he actually finished, uh, well, he did finish the first movement, and then he sketched out virtually everything, but they were just sketches that someone had to go back in and fill in the blanks. 
So in addition to your 110 singers, you have some soloists as well, which play key roles in this piece. I'd like to hear about them. Yeah, you bet. Um, Maria Briggs is a well-known local soprano. She's at Fresno State and uh, is always very engaging on stage. The alto, the mezzo-soprano, is Karen Wilkerson, who is the sister of one of our bases. She's on staff at St. Olaf in Minnesota, and it will be great to have her with us. The um, tenor used to be on staff at Fresno State, still remains a good friend of mine, Jeffrey Friedley. He's now teaching at University in Idaho. And the other one is Frank Pitts, who comes to us from the East Coast. He's a freelance performer. It's, it's going to be great to have him with us. Are there particular movements within this that are highlights, that are or the themes that are particularly well-known that an audience would remember? I would bet that most of the elements that the audience will remember are snippets that were in Amadeus. So the confutatis, confutatis, it's very, very dramatic. Um, and then, of course, the dies irae, it's very, very powerful. You can really tell that Mozart brought a dramatic flair to his liturgical music. Um, and so it's really pretty romantic. I mean, he was writing this in, what, 1790, 91. And it's, it's really forward-looking, I think. That was Dr. Anna Hamra, music director of the Fresno Master Chorale. They're performing Mozart's Requiem on Sunday, April 3rd, 2.30 p.m. at Paul Chagoyan Concert Hall in Fresno. For more information, go to fresnocommunitychorus.org. For Valley Edition, I'm David Alce. And that's today's Valley Edition. You could hear all this and more on our website, kvpr.org. You could also download the podcast and find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We've got an app. It's called KVPR. The show was produced by our news team, including Alice Daniel, Carrie Klein, Mavi Bolaños, and Sarith Hawk. Technical support is from Don Weaver. I'm your host, Kathleen Schock. Thanks for listening. Support for Valley Edition comes from the James Irvine Foundation, accepting nominations now for the 2023 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Awards at irvineawards.org. The California Endowment, health happens when Californians value schools more than prisons. Learn more at calendow.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org slash health equity.